Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. With all the chaos going on this week, you may have noticed that a report was published about the future of referendums. I was part of the group that helped write it and we are going to be talking about how we might avoid this mess in future. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. We recorded this conversation last week, so before all of the recent stuff happened, but I think we all had a sense that something was looming. The people I'm speaking to were all involved with me in the eight months of work that we put into this report. You can hear from Gisela Stewart. She was the lead campaigner for Vote Leave in the referendum. Jenny Watson, she was in 2016 and before that head of the Electoral Commission. So she was the person basically responsible for running the referendum. And also from Alan Rennick from the Constitution Unit, and they were the people who actually set this up. There were other people involved too. We had Andrew Wilson, who's a leading figure in the SNP, people involved in Northern Irish politics. Dominic Grieve was on this commission. He's one of the people who's basically been leading the campaign for a second referendum. So all points of view were here. But this isn't just about what happened over Brexit. This is about what we might do in future if referendums are going to become an increasingly important part of British life. The chaos of this week is partly because we don't know how to connect referendums to representative democracy. And because we don't know, people keep doing the strangest things. So this conversation does connect absolutely with what's going on at the moment. It's about the future, but it's also about avoiding the mistakes of the past. I started by asking Alan Rennick why he thought we needed this report in the first place. I guess two things really, David. One was that referendums are now an important part of our democracy. They have taken place several times and they've also been promised on a wide range of other issues. And the other thing is that we have some rules for referendums, but they're now 20 years old. They were devised in the 1990s, entered the statute book in 2000. And, you know, lots of change has taken place in those 20 years. We've had those referendums, so there are things that we can learn from the referendums that we've had. Lots of other countries have had a range of referendums and have been experimenting with new ways of doing referendums and other forms of democracy, including citizens' assemblies, these kinds of things, different ways of getting people involved in politics. And also, of course, the nature of politics, the nature of campaigning has changed hugely as a result of the rise of digital media, social media. So for all of these reasons, it was time for a serious review of how we do referendums. So it wasn't just a review of the most recent one. And the ones that we've had, they include not just the Scottish referendum, the EU referendum, the AV referendum that people may have forgotten, but Jenny, you were you were the chief counting officer, I were was, you not for I that? Was the Returning chief, officer. The chief counting officer, you're right. I've been the chief counting officer for three referendums and we regulated the third, which was the Scottish referendum, where the chief counting officer was somebody who was the chair of the electoral management board in Scotland. The one I'd add to your list is the referendum on the powers of the Welsh Assembly back in uh, 2011. When you became head of the actual commission, you did not think your primary job, I mean, obviously, it's not the only thing that you've done, there have been general elections too, and there are elections all the time, but that referendums would become the biggest part of the job. I would have been amazed. So when I took on the role of chair of the electoral commission in January 2009, if you had said to me, there will be four referendums in eight years, I would have fallen on the floor with astonishment. And Giza, you obviously we're right at the heart of the one I think most people think is the most important one and also the one that is still completely central to our politics. When you came onto this commission, what did you think your experiences from that referendum could bring to questions about how we do it in future? I think it requires a bit of background about me to understand why I wanted to do that. You know, I grew up in Germany where to hold national referendum is actually against the, the, the constitution. The referendums other than local ones are seen as the worst form of populism. And I arrived in the UK in 1974. So I actually do remember the first referendum. And 
I campaigned during the AEV referendum. I desperately wanted a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty in 2005. When the EU referendum came up, I was very reluctant to get involved and you know, could say more of the wisdom of that. But I had myself made an extraordinary journey from where you shouldn't have them at all to coming to the conclusion that there is a place for them. On that journey from thinking from a background in Germany that these things are dangerous for democracy through to something, I guess, in the middle, they're not the solution to our democratic problems. Is your view still evolving around this? Did your experience shift it on again? I think my kind of bookend is, on the one hand, I hadn't fully articulated that the biggest mistake you can make is to call for a referendum because you cannot heal the divisions within your political parties. They're not a mechanism of overcoming divisions. They create divisions along new lines. But at the same time, for example, if we in the United Kingdom were to move to a more federal structure, which I happen to think we, we should, that would be such a big constitutional change that those who govern would have to seek the consent of those who are being governed to those changes. So this commission has agreed some principles and some recommendations for the future. And it should be said, it is something I think that we all agree to them, given the range of views around that table, not just on the EU referendum itself. We divide it into two broad parts. So one of the big questions, as Jenny said, is this question about when you should have them. There is the separate question about how you should run them, how they should be organised, what the campaign should look like. But on that basic question, when you should have them, and I should say, I think what I came into this thinking, and I'm not sure I've changed my view about this, but I've certainly heard lots of things that have challenged it, is that there is a fundamental clash between holding a referendum and the institutions of representative democracy. And we still haven't worked out a way of how to connect them up. So have them by all means. But if you have them, it's not at all obvious that they're going to be able to produce results that you can feed back in to routine electoral politics. But we have recommended, among other things, that it's really important to distinguish between holding a referendum on a question where there is legislation, or at least there is a very, very clear proposal on the table as the alternative to the status quo, and holding a referendum on a question where essentially you're being asked to choose between the status quo and some unspecified future which still needs to be worked out. So Alan, just take us through a bit how this report has tried to distinguish between these two. Yeah, well, I think two of the things that are really important in referendums are firstly, as you've said, that somehow referendums connect up with the rest of the political process, which means that it needs to connect up with the, the kind of upstream process of working out what are the options that go on the ballot paper in the first place, and also that it connects up downstream with what happens after the vote and how is the decision implemented. So that's one issue, connecting up. And then another issue is ensuring that voters have a clear choice. Voters know what it is that they are voting on and it is possible for voters to make a choice on that basis and for both of those reasons it's preferable if at all possible to have a referendum on something that has already gone through parliament has already been legislated on so what voters are doing is saying yes or no to that legislation and then what the politician's role is after the referendum is simply to implement that legislation that has already been set out. It's not for Parliament trying to work out what on what earth did voters actually mean in this vote. For the kinds of referendums that are on the really big constitutional questions, that is going to be hard. I mean, I think that one of the big problems here is the two big ones that loom over this, the Scottish referendum and the EU referendum were not on that model. They were asking the voters whether they wanted the status quo or something which would be a dramatic, radical constitutional change, and the details still had to be worked out. So how do we think that you can run referendums under those conditions? So first we should say that in the vast majority of referendums you can do that way. We've had 13 referendums in the UK. All the other ones, all the devolution referendums, the alternative vote referendum. The Good could, Friday Agreement. Yeah, all of these can be done, were done in some cases, or could have been done on a post-legislative basis with the legislation going through first. And similarly, if we were to follow Gisela's suggestion, having a referendum in the future on a federal structure for the UK, you could hold that having worked out 
what that structure is and then you hold the vote at the end. But you're right, there are some issues where it is not possible to follow that structure because what the referendum is doing essentially is opening up a process of negotiations and it's then for the negotiations to work out the detail. And what the Commission has said is that again, so far as possible, the aim is clarity in what is being proposed. So the government that puts forward the referendum, which of course could be the UK government or a devolved government, should set out in detail in a white paper what it expects to come as a result of the negotiations, what it's going to be aiming to achieve. And also it should simply set out what that process is. And then if it delivers on what it is said it is expecting to get, then you don't need to have another referendum. That's fairly similar to what happened in the 1997 devolution referendums, where the referendums happened before the legislation went through Parliament, but it was pretty clear in advance what the government was planning, and it then delivered that. No one suggested there should be another referendum there. But there was an additional complication to this in the last referendum, because whether it was the Scottish or the Welsh, the component parts who were part of this actually could bind each other. Once you have a referendum like the EU membership, where the third party of negotiations is an outsider who is neither part of the referendum campaign nor makes any commitments otherwise, what you then have to do when you can't put out the precise plan I do think that there's an expectation that you plan for the various outcomes. What would that have looked like? I think we, we're going to have to do it through an example. I mean, I just what would that, that have I looked just like? Think that's, whenever you're going to hold a referendum, you have to be prepared as, as the parliament or the government that's going to get that result back from the people to be in a position to take account of what the people have said and either to just get on with the legislation. In the case of the alternative vote, it was there, it was in law, it was easy to explain. It would have involved allowing the civil service to plan for a vote to leave the European Union. It and they didn't. Have, I mean, as far as I know, I'm not... If they did, know, they're I'm, hiding it. It's not apparent to me now that there was a great deal of preparation. And in fact, I think um, Political and Constitutional Affairs Committee, Bernard Jenkins Committee at Westminster has said there wasn't enough planning. I mean, I, you just have to prepare for every eventuality that could come. I think it was worse than that. As I understand it, there literally were instructions not to prepare for a no outcome. I'll give you an example of what the kind of things you can do. During the Scottish referendum, I was on the Defence Select Committee. And of course, one of the issues in the case of a Scottish independence is what do we do with fast lane? The nuclear deterrent, what are those kind of options? And we did a report of called the Defence of the Realm, we kind of looked at those implications. So it is possible. I do understand the political sensitivities. For example, during the Scottish referendum, I know the government was very careful not to put anything which could be uh, captured under freedom of information, which would declare a hand. But look, we're all grown-ups. We all know how these things work. The one thing I think you cannot do is say... Like a four-year-old in the playground, you put your hands in front of your eyes and you say, you can't see me. And therefore, I make no preparations for either outcome. That's just not on. And I think that experience that Giza's just talked about in terms of Westminster, might it might differ depending on whether you're looking at it from Holyrood or looking at it at Westminster. You know, some, I'm not saying the Defence Committee did, but there were probably some, I'm thinking of the evidence that was given to Treasury Committee at one point, where I think many people felt that that was actually part of the campaign rather than evidence being given that was kind of thoughtful in that way. So I think you have to think about how that might be perceived. But in the case of the EU referendum, and it is a little bit difficult to discuss it without going back to those recent referendums that lack of preparation has had real consequences it seems to me as an you know somebody who is not connected with this anymore is an ordinary citizen and is looking at what's happening and no question that lack of preparation is one of the things that's driving the demand for a people's vote and looking at Gisela as I say that for a second referendum <laughs> what do you want to call it well it, no, I find it quite extraordinary if you premises that you only have a referendum for big generational decisions And I think that was the understanding of this one. And you have a prime minister who says, I will implement whatever you decide. Then you got two years later, a move which a doesn't even use the word referendum, because I'm sure they will have done some polling and found that the world is with I forget what she was. It's not Gladys. Help me. Gladys from, from Bristol. 
Brenda from Bristol. How can you forget? Who, when she was told about the 2017 general election, just went, oh no, not another one. So they know they can't call it a referendum because the general response would be no, not another one. It's it's Uh, hard to believe that calling it a people's vote would persuade Brenda from Bristol that it was a good idea. But but it's even more, if you go back to the basis on which the people's vote is supposed to be conducted, it's on the basis that the government's such rubbish negotiating. Now, if you really want to get to that level of participatory democracy, that you say we could have a referendum where the people declare to have no confidence in the government. You know, the the Maoist in me who had a Chikivara poster on the room and when she was 17 could be attracted to that. But I'm afraid 50 years on, uh, I just don't think that's a good way of conducting politics. Obviously, some people are going to look at this report and want to know what does it say about the possibility of a second referendum on the EU question. And I think it's fair to say that the report doesn't have a view on that. But it does have a view on in a hypothetical universe, you were running that again or something like it again, how you should do it. And the implication is that you should make some provision where it's an open-ended question in the first referendum for a second consultation about the result. Is that fair? Yes. So the report says that if the government, for whatever reason, fails to produce a clear plan for what it expects to happen in the event of a vote for the change, or if it produces that plan but it manifestly fails to deliver upon that in big ways, then it's appropriate to have a second vote. But that needs to be set out before the first vote. And that's the key thing, isn't it? In this case, the first vote was a one-off. And then you can't second-guess it. Was it Clarissa Reden who said she felt like the Suez Canal was running through her living room? Uh, So I think we've all felt around the Commission table at various points that the EU referendum was kind of running through the the meeting room. But it is really important to stress that it's not about that referendum. It's about referendums that would be held in the future on separate specific issues. And one of the complications here is the role of the government is clearly ambiguous. And on the one hand, it is the instrument that holds these things and is meant to be in some sense standing back from it and on the other hand it has a strong position and certainly in the case of the ones that we're thinking about the government had a very very strong position and one of the ways it defended that position was not to plan for the alternative scenario that was a big part of this. There's something about the cultural norms or the norms that we of the way we do politics and the way that that surrounds referendums. And Gisela started off by talking about, you know, her experience coming here from a country where to have a, a Germany-wide referendum is not permissible. And we might all understand why that is. But actually, there's something about our norms. We're calling for a referendum on a subject in this country is an incredibly easy thing to do. And one of the things that's been quite powerful for me, and I hope it gets some traction, is the thinking that we've done about a kind of checklist on your thinking if you want to call for a referendum can you just run through some of these questions in your mind before you do to think about whether it is feasible and realistic for you to put as an offer to the voters is it clear that it can be delivered have you allowed the planning to be done have you allowed the legislation to be passed in good time there's a whole range of things and I think it's easy for me as a former Labour MP to attack a Tory government but I think on reflection Parliament itself needs to look back and look at the legislation which we so nonchalantly passed, which kind of allowed for this to happen. And just to be clear to people, that was all that happened, right? A bill was passed that said there will be a referendum, and then there was. And how do you, if you are an elected politician... You know, politics is very fashionable to knock, isn't it? I believe in democratic politics because I think it's the best way of negotiating the compromises we need to make because we can't agree on the choices that we make for the future of our country. We we know we never will all agree. So we need some people to negotiate that for us. And that's what... And it's so unfashionable to defend that. And I also think it's very hard for an MP to stand up in Parliament and say, you know what, I don't want to give the people a say on this matter. You know, because I think I'm... How is that perceived? You're in some way better, you're in some way superior. Actually, we're not saying any of that. We're simply saying there is more for Parliament to think about when it legislates for those matters. Jenny, you have just made the key observation in that sense. Because if you go back to 2005... Tony Blair did not want a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. But in the end, all three parties went in promising one on the simple basis that we had a European election coming up. We knew the Conservative Party would say, we will ask the people. And we kind of felt, yeah, but as a politician, we can't really say, no, we're not. 
is similarly, if you think back about the 2017 general election, you know, there was a fixed term parliament act. I went back through the Hansard to read up as we passed that legislation. Did anybody anticipate a situation where a prime minister would just simply get her lectern, put it in number 10 Downing Street and call a general election? And the whole of parliament would go and say, oh, right then. Because... The reason why we all voted this through, totally unanticipated, is that when you as an MP, it's you versus the people, none of us go and say, no, 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 it's got to be us. And maybe we need to think this through a little bit more. One of the things that the report talks about is what other ways are there of engaging people directly in the democratic process? And referendums are great at engaging people in one sense, in that people can make a choice. But democracy is about much more than just a final choice between options that have already been worked out. It's also about that whole process of discussing and listening to each other and compromising with each other that Jenny was talking about there. So the report also looks at some of the innovative forms of of democratic engagement that have been tried in various places. I mean, most famously has been in Ireland, where, of course, they had their referendum earlier this year on abortion, and that was preceded by a citizens' assembly. So a gathering of 99 randomly selected people who got together over five weekends, who heard from the experts on abortion, deliberated in depth among themselves, and came to conclusions. And that fed into... Uh, parliamentary debate about what should happen and then that led to the referendum. So you can see there a really careful process of ensuring that ordinary citizens and politicians were involved all the way through at every stage in that democratic process and although it was a highly controversial issue and produced a major change in Irish politics and Irish culture and Irish self-understanding you know it's been successful and people on both sides recognise the legitimacy of the outcome. Do you think from your experience in 2016 that could have worked? I mean can you imagine a version of the EU referendum which was closer to the Irish model given the politics of it? and given the role of the parties as well, because it is different, I think, on one of these quote-unquote moral issues relative to one of these more raw political issues. And that's, yeah, I don't disagree with some of that, although I do think it behoves us all to remember a little bit that the reason that there was a referendum on abortion in Ireland is because there was a constitutional amendment that was passed. And so actually the referendum, although we all talk about it as being about abortion, was actually about a change to the constitution. And I think one of the other discussions we've had on the commission is whether we want to have, you know, more referendum, citizen-initiated referendums, and we concluded that, that we didn't, and we think they're right for around questions of power and where is power exercised. And I just think that's that's why it loops back to Ireland in my mind, because actually that was almost about power and the constitution. And you have to, if you're going to change the constitution, you have to ask the people. I think I'm a little bit more sceptical than Alan about citizens' juries in that way in the referendum. Although I do think the debate we have in this country is slightly daft in that we seem to want to give the people either all the say or none of the say and there must be something in the middle which is how do you engage public more in the development of policies and one of the interesting things that we talked about is whether when you're holding a future referendum it could be for a parliament one of the parliaments or assemblies to commission a citizens inquiry and then to have citizens debate and perhaps even put their thoughts and recommendations to the people. Certainly to come up with some questions that they think campaigners ought to ask in that referendum campaign, I certainly think that's very complementary to a referendum process. My caution around this is, if you talk about moral and ethical questions, then you create a process where you can allow people to make a journey. It may even allow some people to catch up with the world around them having moved and being given permission sometimes to articulate views which are slightly out of step. But when you come to constitutional ones, the thing which troubles me most, and it's a serious trouble, if you conceive as political parties, groups of people broadly speaking share a worldview coming together, they kind of then stand for election and you get the the weight of your ideas reflected in how many of you get elected. And the biggest group forms the government and they meet in the building called Westminster where they thrash out these competing interests and reach a consensus and they've got mechanisms to do that. You then suddenly throw in a question like the EU referendum which splits both of your big parties halfway down the middle and then you ask one side to implement 
what they actually hadn't campaigned for. I think you are really undermining the fabric of the structures with which we conduct our democratic institutions. Hence my really cautious, if you want to use them, treat them with great care and think about beforehand how you overcome the schisms you have created. And if the last two years have shown me anything, is that that's our biggest learning curve. And then I think that's where the commission's kind of checklist, which essentially says, before you use this hammer to break this glass, think about one, two, three, four, five. It's probably the most important thing that's to come out nice of it. a pretty nice way to put it, actually. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Do you think that there are things that could have been done in 2016 that would have made British politics less divisive now than it is? Because I have to assume that notwithstanding your doubts, you think that referendum had to take place. And in campaigning for Vote Leave, you were very clear that you wanted a particular outcome. But what's happened in the two years since has not been great for British democracy because of the divisions it's opened up. Do you think there are things that could have been done before the vote, either during the campaign or in the legislation, that would mean we were less divided now than we are? You assume that the the setting of the referendum was inevitable. Let's just look back how we ended up here. In 2015, David Cameron did not anticipate that he would win the general election. So, as in 2010 in the coalition government, he could appease the Lib Dems by offering them an AV referendum, which they duly lost. He thought in 2015 in the run-up, he could kind of be all things to all people, promise a referendum on EU membership to appease a section of his party, but then thought, once I have to form a coalition again, I'm sure I can rely on the Lib Dems to stop me from doing this. So he suddenly finds in 2015 that not only has he won a general election, but he's got a manifesto which he has to implement. So I think in Downing Street, they've probably got the 1975 handbook of how to win an EU referendum off the shelf. And it was quite clear. You go and pretend it's a renegotiation, come back with a great victory of a renegotiated deal and tell the people I have solved the problem. And of course, it didn't work. It didn't work because, A, he didn't renegotiate. He asked for nothing and he got nothing. And the whole project fear did not work. So to sound terribly pathetic, you certainly should not have started where David Cameron started in 2015 in your motives and processes of calling a referendum. Jenny, were you struck when you were at the Electoral Commission and you saw this process unfolding by how divisive it became or did you anticipate that it would be like this? When you hold a referendum it should always be on an issue which you think will engage the public. And it did. And it did and I think that one of the things perhaps that those of us who saw the independence referendum in Scotland pretty close up that also engaged the public and that also again generated incredibly lively debate I mean it was a privilege to witness that actually I really genuinely don't think that was well understood from Westminster or from London based media my experience of that was that in Scotland there was at times a very emotional and quite lively debate but there was an incredibly engaged debate you know in pubs in restaurants on bus stops it wasn't this kind of theoretical issue that was passing people by people really cared about it but it's quite difficult then to put that genie back into the bottle do you think the engagement was because it was a straightforward question that everyone could understand and everyone understood that their vote counted. Is there something about referendums we should accept I absolutely which have. engages people in a way that nothing else does? I certainly think that's true. I also think that's true in the case of the EU referendum. I mean, I think people understood the choice they were making. Their reasons for making it and voting in the way they did might be different. But the fact that you don't have a constituency filter 
that actually it's every vote that is counted and every vote has equal weighting. I absolutely think people agree with that. And in fact, one of the things that we we thought at the Electoral Commission would happen in the EU referendum was that turnout would be very high. And that proved to be the case. And I'm sure one of the reasons for that is because people thought, whatever, however I want to choose here, my vote will find a way through to be counted. And Alan, do you think there's a tension here and a tension for a report like this, which is, on the one hand, we want to make these things work better, which means complicating them, basically, I mean, even if it's to have deliberative democracy feeding in, to have the options more worked out, to have more discussion. It takes some of the edge off the clarity of the question, the choice, the day of the vote, the outcome, and that that's still quite difficult thing to square, that there is a risk that what's good about referendums, which is the engagement, would be lost by making referendums work better. No, I don't think that. I think the aim is precisely to maximise clarity through this process. And what Jenny is describing in Scotland is that clarity and focus came partly because the topic was just a a topic that really engaged people, but partly also because it was a long process through which there was plenty time for people to develop their understanding, develop their thinking, various very complicated issues percolated through in people's thinking. I mean, I'm originally from Scotland, so I have lots of friends in, in Scotland and they were constantly asking me the most abstruse technical questions. The Constitution Unit was suddenly <laughs> in demand. <laughs> I mean, it was extraordinary. And they were asking me questions because there was an ongoing discussion in the pub that they were taking part in and they wanted to get back for the next round in, in the pub and the next evening with the answer to the question that someone had answer, asked them. So I totally agree with Jenny that this was going on. But it was happening because there was all of this stuff around the referendum and it wasn't just one vote one day. And so that's what there wasn't in the EU referendum case. So actually we shouldn't compare these two, that the EU referendum was much quicker there was much less discussion leading up to it. I mean, people have been discussing the EU forever, but the referendum itself was a much, much more attenuated process. Uh, well, yes. I mean, the, the EU referendum was far from being the worst in terms of the, the amount of discussion that was taking place. You know, turnout was high in that referendum. It was over 70%. Contrast that with the AV referendum, where turnout was just over 40%, if I remember correctly, or the Welsh referendum in 2011, where it was even lower. And these are referendums in which really there wasn't much discussion. But, you know, those are referendums on topics that don't engage people very directly. And one of the things that the Commission has has considered is the point that if you try to have a referendum on a topic that that doesn't engage people, it's just impossible to get really good quality debate going. So you do need that combination of the passion and people wanting to get involved, but also the opportunities for people to think through the issues seriously and, and think through exactly what they care about. One of the things which struck me is when you don't have enough time as a politician, as a campaigner, to allow people to think and express their views. Personally, the the best thing I've ever done was when we had the assisted dying bill as a private member's bill in the House of Commons. And I had a massive, big, I think I had my constituency, the largest proportion of doctors per square mile anywhere. I literally did three public meetings on where I brought a lawyer and just said, look, he's going to spend five minutes explaining to you what the bill is. I just want to know what you think. And it was extraordinary that all these three big public meetings, A, they came out along different lines than I anticipated. They utterly self-moderated themselves. The people sort of got up and said their bit. And it was really thoughtful. And because I didn't, as a politician, didn't have the kind of the time pressure, I could say, and I will come back and then try and distill what you think. So I end up at a view And if you've got some big subjects in very compressed times, you simply haven't got the space to say to people, just tell me what you think, and then I'll come back and try and moderate it. So in the EU referendum, that was not your experience? No, because... Public public meetings were already... People had, as it were, made their mind up and they were coming to express themselves. Oh, and the period was by far too short. And the question was such that people just kept repeating what they've probably been saying for the last 40 years on either side. So to get on to this question then about not when and what, but how the campaign should be run. Jenny, what do you think from your experiences of the things, particularly that are now in this Commission's report, that were missing before that need to be added to a referendum campaign? Because very few people, I think, look at particularly the EU campaign and say this is a model of how a sort of democratic 
argument should be run. What do you think was missing that well, we need to add? I certainly think there's something around digital. Just reflecting the way in which we do campaign, people do campaign nowadays. And so there are some kind of possibly seen as quite technical things that we're asking for on the Commission around every campaign ad having an imprint so that you can tell if something's on digital media, you can tell who produced it and you can go back and look at who spent the money on it. You know, if you're the regulator, you can tie up the money with the campaigning. And if you're a campaign group, you can look at who's making the other ads and you can say, okay, well, you know, we're going to challenge that or we can, that person shouldn't be part of our political discussion. So there's definitely something there around around digital. Actually, interestingly, one thing that we discussed and did not want to take forward is the idea that there should be some kind of truth commission to regulate the quality of what is said. And that's really important for me because I think it matters in our democracy that we accept that it is for campaigners to challenge the case that other campaigners make. And it may be for journalists to challenge that as well. But it isn't for an official body to say that fact is true and that fact is untrue. Because there clearly is. I think people I've said this quite a lot, an anxiety that referendums are different from general elections because the campaign is this much more sort of temporary thing. People come together and then they disperse. And the frustration that people feel now, they want to hold someone to account if they think that there was something about the campaign that wasn't right. They want to know who to blame. And in general elections, what keeps you honest is you've got to come back next time. And if you did something wrong the previous time you will be held to account for it and as people look for Dominic Cummings or Erin Banks they want to find the person to blame and there is this sense that referendum campaigns are different because there isn't anything there afterwards. The way I'd express that point is there's a degree of reputational risk that you have if you're leading a political party that seeks to find a way to bend the rules that you might not have if you're leading a referendum campaign that might seek to find a way to bend the rules. And one of the things we talked about on the Commission is that it would be good to see a much shorter time frame within which the campaign spending returns for campaigners have to be submitted because that would allow the analysis of anything that might need to be looked at to happen much more quickly. So I think we've ended up saying that they should all be returned within three months, which is very different from the way it is now for the large campaign organisations. It's six months, so you can already see that that kind of pushes the time frame for investigations a little bit further out. But referendums, you know, they're always going to be, because by their nature, they're bigger questions, they're always going to be cross-party. They're always going to be an agglomeration of people with campaign interests. And A bit of me thinks, well, take a step back. If you don't like that, then the answer to that question will not always be find a better way to stop it happening, but it might be to say, is this the right kind of question on which to have a referendum in the first place? I think, David, you're too generous to politicians that we are held back from doing things because we think we have to be re-elected again. You go into one election and at that moment you just want to win that one. And then and, you'll deal with the consequences <laughs> afterwards. And, you wow. know, and the reputational damage is the one which really is very significant. What makes a difference is I think campaigns, it kind of metals you and it metals your argument. You have to keep testing. So when I go to the Scottish referendum, what in a way sort of was a real game changer suddenly was, would we still have the Queen and what would be our currency? These arguments crystallise the closer you get to actual polling day. You know, or in 1992 general election, it was Labour's taxation. And you could see that the 97 election was fought with the doubts which the 92 campaign showed. So the same with, with the referendum. Therefore, I do think that you need to have a period which is longer than one which had there, where people know it is kind of coming and you start talking about it and you have a framework where what you said gets checked. And again... Never, ever patronise the public. They are actually by far savvier and articulate in in, in occasions to spot weak points than we sometimes think. And I think we need to give them the space and we need to have mechanisms by which these things are flushed out. And there may be things which, you know, the Westminster bubble things are terribly important and don't matter to people out there and vice versa. So it's a kind of time for people to allow to think. And then polling day itself, I always say, it's a crystallisation moment of a whole lot of things of people have been thinking about. Do you think we're going to have more of these referendums soon in the sense that, like Jenny was saying, come into 
the job of running the electrical commission and suddenly you discover there are four and eight years like buses and there's this feeling that there's this momentum building up around them on the other hand a lot of people have been seriously scarred by the last one and presumably there would be quite a lot of politicians who would say never never again do you think we are actually reporting on something that is going to continue to be a really significant part of British democracy? Yes, and I think we can see that already. So if you just look at what people are talking about already, some people are talking about the possibility of another referendum on Brexit. Whether that's going to happen, who knows, but people are talking about it. We've seen talk in recent months about potentially a referendum on abortion in Northern Ireland. That talk didn't last very long. It seems to have disappeared. But, you know, people instantly turned to the idea of a referendum as a way potentially of resolving a difficult issue. There is, of course, the possibility possibility of a further referendum on Scottish independence. Gisela talked earlier about the fact that the UK constitutional system as a whole is quite fragile at the moment and may need to undergo substantial changes uh, for which a referendum might be important in order to legitimise the decisions that have been made. So, I mean, referendums have become an important part of our political system. And between 1997 and 2015, every one of the major UK parties proposed referendum, at least one referendum, in every one of its election manifestos. Now, the Commission suggests that parties should be much more careful about doing that, but that they are doing it and that it's kind of the habit has developed of doing it. I think is clear. The reason I think it's important for us to plan on the basis that they will be part of our politics for the for the future is that I think we're we're only just learning as, as Giza said earlier on about the interaction that they have with what has been a very very strong parliamentary democracy and so if we don't do this stepping back and thinking about it and setting out the change that we think we need for the future I think we could be in a in a bad place and actually some of what we've recommended has broader relevance to politics as well I mean one of the recommendations is that there should be an inquiry to look at paid for political advertising and where that happens and where it doesn't happen there's been a, a lot of discussion about it around on uh, digital media but we allow it in the press print media we don't allow it on broadcast media so perhaps it's time to step back and look at all of that again and say you know where is this allowed and where isn't it so there are some recommendations that have wider currency one of the things as politicians we really must not do is kind of undermine the value of the promises we make so I still can't quite get over the fact that we promised referendums on elected mayors we imposed police commissioners and a few years on because Everybody knew devolution in England outside London was unfinished business. So we then imposed the strategic mayors without a referendum and in that process absorbed the police commissioners into that role. And if you don't have the decision to hold a referendum as part of a strategic thinking, including its implementation, the voters will just lose faith in the way you're planning things and why you're holding them. One last question, Giza. You said that one thing that the EU referendum in particular brought out was how divided the parties are internally on some of these huge questions. If we're going to have more of these referendums in future, and it could be on Scotland, it could be on devolution within England, it could be on the constitutional settlement more generally, do you think it's going to weaken the hold of the two main political parties on British politics? Do you think actually what we're seeing here is a fundamental tension between two models of democracy? And if the referendum model is the one that is inevitably going to gather momentum we should accept that the other one is weakening? Yes and no. Uh, and let me make a positive case for this. When it came to the subject of the European Union, I would argue that since 1994, the two political parties became fossilised. Both were selling a notion of the past, and that reflected itself in the referendum. The Labour Party, ever since the Shakti Law Commission in the late 80s, which was very socialist, and delivered us things that Margaret Thatcher wouldn't give us. We, as instinctive internationalists, we became pro-European and less hung up about sovereignty. And for the Tories, it was sovereignty. So if you had a referendum which was about notions of the past, which you had this one, then I think it's not that you created divisions, you just suddenly highlight them. On the positive side, what struck me is that free movement of people and immigration something that had been in the public consciousness, but the political parties had refused to take ownership of it as a subject they were responsible for. 
and we saw on the continent extremist parties coming into government or being significant parts of government. In the UK, one of the rather unexpected results of the referendum has been the major political parties had finally faced up to it as a legitimate concern and have taken ownership of it. And immigration in the next few months when we have to have legislation going through will be discussed from the main political parties' front benches and not driven by the edges of the extreme. And that's been a good thing. Jane, do you think there's a tension now between referendums and general elections? I think that political parties are broad churches within which you come up with a position that is acceptable to the broadest possible part of that political party, however you do it, whether you do that through the membership or whether you do that through some kind of other policy kind of conversation. And the thing I think is interesting about that is that, of course, what referendums do is they give that choice to the people. And it's quite hard to see for me, once you've outsourced that, how you then bring your party back together again. And I think we're seeing that in the two main political parties at the moment. So I think there's a tension, but do I think it's a tension that can't be managed? I don't know. I mean, if you you know if you knew anything about British history, you'll know that parties have broken up and reformed around issues like this before. Maybe that will happen. Maybe this time it won't happen, and there'll be a more successful holding together. Yeah, as Jacob Rees-Mogg says, it's the Cornwalls all over again. Well, but it's going to be interesting if you look back in a few years' time, because the Labour vote north of the M25 and all the research we've done, we're wearing a different hat with Change Britain is that the Labour vote was for leaving, they want us to get on with it, and our front bench at the moment doesn't seem to be responding to that. And you could argue that the Labour Party is becoming more like the American Democrats. It becomes a rights-based, public sector worker, metropolitan party, and that the traditional roots of the, the Labour Party in the northeast and the northwest, they went from Labour to toying with UKIP, And if you look at the local elections, then went straight and became red Tories and voted for the Tory party. So the challenge which you put to us, I think, will play itself out in in real time over the next sort of year or two. So, Alan, you get the last word since it's your (laughs) constitution unit that set this thing up. You are, I think it's fair to say, you're an optimist about democratic politics. And the, the report, I hope, is quite in its way optimistic in that it's saying that there are lots of things we could do to make this work better. And if this is a new fact of political life, we shouldn't just sort of wring our hands, which is sometimes my tendency, but we should actually suggest some practical fixes. And there are many. That said, I don't think at the end of eight months, I was that changed in my view that there is a fundamental tension here. Do you think, looking forward, that the the fixes suggested in this report can actually address that fundamental tension between direct democracy and representative democracy? Or are they kind of going to soften it, but it'll still be there? Well, I think the referendum that you've just been referring to there is the very hardest sort of referendum for the democratic system to deal with. So we shouldn't think of it as the template for referendums. Absolutely. It's the outlier in some ways. Yeah, and that was a, a referendum on an immensely divisive issue in which the electorate gave politicians an instruction that the politicians disagreed with and it wasn't a very clear instruction that's the worst possible combination and then they had to negotiate with people who had no interest at all in getting a good outcome for exactly that so if you, look at, if you look at most referendums then there is a precise proposal the politicians put a proposal to the electorate the electorate agree that proposal or they disagree with that proposal but one way or another there's a clear instruction that comes from voters most of the time that kind of tension can be resolved. The proposals that have been produced by the Commission are intended to relieve those tensions that clearly do exist in some circumstances and ensure that even if we have referendums in these very difficult kinds of contexts, it is possible so far as so far as we can to maintain the compatibility of the different parts of the system. And then also the proposals are intended to ensure that when you actually get to that campaign period, so far as possible, you have a fair 
fair campaign where both sides can be properly heard and voters are able to get the information that they want in order to make their decision. And the Commission has made, I think, some really important recommendations. I mean, almost almost 70 recommendations in the report, all of them unanimously agreed by a hugely diverse array of people. I think that's a pretty fantastic basis for further work in this area by governments and parliaments across the UK. I think it may be that the bigger lesson from all of this process for, for democratic politics is for politicians and political parties to get closer to the people because actually tiny numbers of us now belong to political parties. And if you're really going, as Giesler says, if you're really going to be able to pick up on the issues that are of burning concern to most people, how you get to those views and how you understand those views and how you reflect those views, that's the challenge. If you would like to read this report, it has 70 recommendations, but there's also an executive summary if you want to get there quicker. You can see it at the website of the Constitution Unit, and we will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore. I do think it is worth reading. If you'd like to hear an episode that we recorded just after the Brexit referendum, which captures, I think, something about how difficult it is to have these conversations, but how important it is to have these conversations that go beyond the usual yaboo politics. We talked to Sophie Hanna back then, and we will tweet the link to that episode too. What I found myself thinking as I left Carlton Gardens on Monday, and the scrum was still outside, in fact, I think there were more people there because Boris was still holed up inside writing his resignation letter or rather posing for the photo of him signing his resignation letter, was that this is a mess that goes beyond what we've been talking about just now. And it's something I know that I say a lot on this podcast when we talk about the future of democracy, that something here is fundamentally stuck. And what probably is going on at the moment is that this crisis of democracy that includes Brexit and includes Trump and includes what's happening in Europe too, all the things that we talk about on this podcast, has this feature in common that people are, in various ways, sick to the back teeth of conventional democratic politics. They can't stand it. They can't stand the way it keeps repeating on itself. And yet they want conventional democratic politics to sort this mess out. There isn't an alternative on the table. They look to the people to do it differently. They wait for the next election. Boris quits, someone else takes his place, Theresa May at some point will quit, Jeremy Corbyn or someone else will take her place, on the circus goes, and yet the institutions stay the same. Some of what needs to change is actually in the report of this commission. It does talk a lot about different ways of doing democracy and ways of doing it better, and that does require radical change. Citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, different kinds of elections, different kinds of rules. But it's also something I realise we never really get to the heart of it. What would this change look like? And we're going to talk more about that through the autumn. We're going to hear more from our regular panellists about the change that we might be able to believe in because we are stuck at the moment. Next week, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump and we're stuck with him. He's coming to the country this week. We're going to be talking about the Supreme Court and we're going to be talking about the fact that some of the things that are happening today in democratic politics will have consequences that last way beyond the next electoral cycle, way beyond the next political leaders that will last for a generation. That's what this podcast does. It takes the long view. So join us next week to talk about Trump and if anything else happens in the Brexit story to talk about that too. It's Wednesday afternoon. I'm going home to watch the football. My name's David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Can I ask really quickly why it's not referenda? Yes. yes I spent the first, first four of the eight meetings were spent. It's a plural, it's a it's referendum, it's a gerund. Gerund? Gerund? We literally gerund, did. Yeah. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.